Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of violence with a print disability. I'm Pat Steele, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Deanna Snyder. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register in USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcasts with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes to the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. And before we get to Des Moines Register Day, I would like to uh, read this announcement. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5 o'clock, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is a read broadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8 o'clock, you'll hear the Midweek Shopping Cart. At 9 p.m., it's Time Magazine. At 10 o'clock, it's the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up our day with the New York Times at 11 o'clock. So it's a full day of lots of information here on IRIS. Now we'll take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Weather forecast today, we're looking for a high of 75 degrees. It'll be warm with a shower and thunderstorm possible. Winds will be out of the south-southwest at 10 to 20 miles per hour. And tonight, expecting some rain and a thunderstorm. Tomorrow, a humid high of 72 and a low of 63. Our normal high for this time of year is 60 degrees, so well above that, and normal low is 40. Our record high was set back in 1899 at uh, 84 degrees and record low 21 back in 1937. Sunrise today at 7.36 a.m. and sunset at 6.21 p.m. From the front page of the Des Moines Register, out to pasture have Iowa's hot farmland sales finally cooled and also COVID vaccinations are scarce this fall. From the Metro and Iowa section, um, Haley said that she forewarned the world on Hamas's plans. There's early trick-or-treating at Living History Farms, and Scott calls the $106 billion war aid plan a bad deal. So let's look at the weather and headlines, and now here's Deanna with our first story. Thank you, Pat. Out to pasture. Have Iowa's hot farmland sales finally cooled? This is from Donnell Eller of the Des Moines Register. After two years of record highs, Iowa farmland values have plateaued. Rising interest rates, declining profits, and drought are cooling buyers' enthusiasm, say the experts. Despite the slowdown, Iowa farmland prices remain close to record highs. Two new reports show that. They crept 0.6% higher in September compared to a year ago, according to the Realtors Land Institute Iowa chapter report, and the Chicago Federal Reserve showed them in inching 2% higher in July compared to a year earlier. We're not on that aggressive double-digit year-after-year climb that began in late 2020, said Jim Rodermick, who is vice president at Iowa Appraisal in Des Moines. 
but the market remained steady. Rodimix data shows values climbed 10.4% last year over 2021 to average $13,742 an acre. That's after jumping 43.3% to $12,450 an acre in 2021 over 2020. Through June this year, average farmland values dropped 2.6% to $13,385 an acre compared to last year, Rodermick said. The Realtors Land Institute shows a slight cooling with a 0.2% decline over the past six months, ending in September. Elliot Seifert, a Hertz real estate services farmland broker in Cedar Falls, says we're not seeing many record sales, but they're not falling out of bed either. Strong farm profits in recent years are helping to support values, said Seifert, a Realty Land Institute's member. Farm income is projected to fall 23% this year, but 2022 was a record year for Iowa and U.S. farm profits, U.S. Department of Agriculture data shows. And while 2021 failed to set income records in Iowa or nationally, it came close, USDA records show. The previous record in Iowa was set in 2011 and nationally in 2013. In both cases, the reason was reduced yields as a result of widespread drought. David Whitaker, owner of Whitaker Marketing Group in Huxley and president of the Realtors Land Institute for Iowa Chapter, said farm profits have been fantastic and there's still a lot of cash out there. After a year that set a record per acre average, high dollar sales are still occurring. Last year, a sale in Sioux Sioux County in the state's northwest corner set an Iowa farmland record of $30,000. Almost every week, there was a sale north of $20,000 an acre, and it wasn't just in northwest Iowa. It was happening all over the state, said Rodermick. The state's hot farmland market attracted an investment group that included Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow, Boston Celtics forward Blake Griffin, and other sports stars. The pro athletes planned to spend $5 million buying U.S. farmland, starting with a farm in Iowa. Close to 150,000 acres were sold in Iowa in 2022, said Rodermick, and nearly 143,000 acres in 2021, outpacing the annual average of about 90,000 acres. The run-up pushed farmland values to year-over-year records. In 2022, values hit $11,411 an acre. And in 2021, 9,751. Iowa State University's annual survey showed that. The previous record was $8,716 set in 2013. Whitaker said Iowa isn't experiencing the same number of $20,000 an acre sales this year, but they're still occurring. It's still a really, really strong market, he said. This year, about 75,300 acres have been sold. Iowa could still hit the average acres sold and boost the average price in the two remaining months of 2023. But Seifert said the drought that's lingered for three years in Iowa has hurt buyers' confidence, as have rising interest rates. The Federal Reserve has boosted a key interest rate 11 times in 19 months to curb inflation, bringing borrowing costs to their highest levels in 2020 in 22 years. Interest rates are the fastest-growing farm production expense, increasing 19.1% in 23 and 33.2% in 22, the USDA said in an August report. Farm debt is expected to reach a record high this year. 
That's definitely providing downward pressure on the market, said Whitaker. But Seifert thinks better-than-expected yields this fall will juice farmland sales. He said with the lack of rain, farmers had very low expectations for yields, but they're pleasantly surprised once they get in the field and find the yields that they're getting. The USDA knocked Iowa's projected corn yield average down one bushel from 2022 to 199 per acre this year and cut soybeans to 58, a half bushel lower. At that level, Iowa would remain the nation's largest corn grower and second largest soybean producer. Rodemick believes possible supply disruptions caused by the Israel-Gaza war could boost interest in Iowa farmland. He said an upheaval in the global market and grain prices will start going up, and then we're going to see another run-up in land prices. Iowa's boosted farmland values help sellers, but they also ripple into the prices that growers pay to rent land, said Chad Hart, who is an Iowa State University agricultural economist. So far, Iowa farmland rents have climbed 17 percent since 2020, averaging $269 an acre this year. USDA data shows. That has wide impact on growers, since about 60% of Iowa farmers lease their cropland. Higher cash rents are likely to continue in 2024. Rodemick pointed to a couple of farmland rental auctions that have netted over $500 an acre as Iowa farmers renew rental contracts for next year's crops. Normally, high-quality farmland would rent for $400 an acre, he said. Hart said $500 an acre rent is likely an anomaly caused by a few farmers offering premium prices to lock in acres that haven't been previously available. He said that's likely in an area that's very competitive, where farmers are looking for new land to open up. Production costs hit a record in 2022 after a 15% spike and will set another one this year, climbing 7% based on USDA projections. Farmland rental costs are expected to contribute to this year's hike, the USDA says, and while revenue from crops and livestock sales hit a record in 2022, it's expected to decline 4.3% this year with falling prices for corn, soybeans, pigs, milk, and other farm commodities. Even with farm income cooling, Hart said farmers buy land looking to hold it for decades or generations. He said they're not expecting to flip it in six months. A Purdue University survey last month showed farmers are optimistic about long-term farmland values. Despite high input costs, rising interest rates, and the risk of lower crop and livestock prices, Whitaker said many farmers, the largest group of Iowa farmland buyers, often have limited opportunities to act. He said farmland may not become available for 60 years, so if you don't buy it now, you're probably not going to have an opportunity to buy it in your lifetime. Back to you, Pat. Thank you, Deanna. Also from the front page of the Des Moines Register, COVID vaccinations are scarce this fall. This is a story written by USA Today's Adriana Rodriguez. Americans eager to get the updated COVID-19 vaccine in September were disappointed when they began looking for doses. Some pharmacies aren't posting or weren't posting enough appointments. Others didn't have enough vaccines. Most hospitals and clinics haven't gotten their shipment yet. During the three years the virus was considered a public health emergency, the government was paying for and distributing the shots. 
Now that the emergency phase has ended, COVID-19 vaccine distribution has become a commercial enterprise and problems persist more than a month after the vaccine's approval. For manufacturers, it's mostly business as usual. Industry experts say the problems have arisen in other stages of the process with wholesalers and distributors, pharmacies, and insurance companies. The White House reports that more than 7 million Americans vaccinated with the updated vaccines as of last week, but the growing pains are far from over. Prashant Prashant Yadav, a medical supply chain expert and senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, said the COVID infrastructure is still a question mark. Pharmacists at chains like CVS and Walgreens have had little control over the barrage of appointments their employers set up since the first rollout in 2020. After weeks of administering the fall 2023 vaccines with little reprieve, pharmacists staged a walkout. The companies responded by promising additional staffing, agreeing to pay overtime, and allowing employees to control when they're expected to cover vaccination appointments. The upshot of those improvements was a significant drop in the number of appointments available on any given day right as vaccination season began ramping up, said Karen Winslow, a grant supervisor in the former interim executive director at Virginia Pharmacy Association. In addition to the updated COVID-19 vaccine, federal regulators also recently approved and recommended a new RSV vaccine for older Americans. All these things happening at once, Winslow said, make it a perfect storm. As patients struggled to find appointments at chain pharmacies, others turned to local hospitals, community health clinics, and independent pharmacies, but they didn't have vaccines on hand. Providers at some facilities said they've just begun receiving their first shipment of vaccines, while others say they're still waiting or have been unable to order shots altogether. By mid-October, Dr. Luisa Perez, a provider for the nonprofit Somos Community Care, didn't know what to tell patients. She said, I have not been able to get any vaccines for COVID or know when it's going to be given to us. Somos providers who have tried to access COVID-19 vaccines through typical commercial channels have been told by wholesalers there are no shots available. That's a quote from Perez. One problem is that wholesalers and distributors prioritize larger accounts with chain pharmacies, such as Walgreens and CVS, industry experts said. When the market mechanism takes over, bigger accounts get priority, Yadav said. Unlike in the first years of the public health emergency when the government paid for and distributed COVID-19 vaccines, private companies are now shouldering the cost. Wholesalers purchase vaccines, pharmacies buy them, and insurance companies reimburse the pharmacies once the vaccines have been administered. Unfortunately, the cash flow hasn't been as seamless as the companies involved had hoped. Amanda Applegate, Director of Practice Development at the Kansas Pharmacists Association, said, In many cases, pharmacies are getting underpaid by insurance companies for the vaccine or won't be paid for a matter of months. The limited cash flow has forced pharmacies to be conservative when ordering vaccines from wholesalers, industry experts say, which is why some pharmacies had limited doses despite the high demand at the beginning of the season. 
Many of those who expressed frustrations in the first few weeks of the rollout about not being able to secure vaccine appointments where and when they wanted were among the healthiest and most technologically savvy consumers around, the people who immediately took note of the backlog. Industry experts said those who really suffer are residents living in marginalized communities. These are the patients that Perez sees at her SOMAS facility in the Bronx. People who are underinsured or uninsured, don't speak English, work multiple jobs, and can't navigate the health system with as much ease as their mostly white and affluent counterparts. When I tell them I go, I, when I tell them to go to pharmacy like Walgreens, they look at me like I just grew another head. She said, "What do you mean? Do I have to give them my information? I don't know them. Do they speak Spanish?" They ask. Industry experts warn consumers to expect more problems to pop up this season. Yadav said it took decades for the commercial market to perfect the flu vaccine rollout each year. He said. It will take some time before the COVID vaccine market will operate like the v- flu vaccine market. It's still in its infancy. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. Okay, there's a lot of politics in the paper today. Um, there is a, a brief overview on the front page of the paper that I'll read, and then I'll go on with an article on Nikki Haley. Staking out positions on war aid and vets issues, it says, a handful of Republican presidential candidates in Iowa over the weekend staked out their positions on the Israel-Hamas and Russia-Ukraine wars and President Biden's request for $106 billion in aid to help Israel and Ukraine, while one focused on veterans' issues. So just a preview of what's inside. Uh, Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy said Congress should reject the aid packages saying the U.S. risks getting pulled into another war. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said she warned world leaders five years ago about Hamas and urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu after the attack to finish them. Senator Tim Scott called the aid package a bad idea and said the U.S. should begin turning its attention from Ukraine to Israel. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis launched his Iowa Veterans Coalition, promising to modernize veterans' health care, combat their mental health issues, and improve military recruitment. And so I will move in on to Metro in Iowa. The first leader that they talk about is Haley, forewarned world on the Hamas's plans, told leaders years ago of maps with Israeli targets. This is from F. Amanda Tugate of the Des Moines Register out of Pella. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley says she is haunted by Hamas's unprecedented ground attack on Israel. The former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations told more than 100 potential caucus goers in Pella on Saturday that she previously warned world leaders about Hamas, an Islamic militant group, and its plans to cross over into Israel and kill as many Israelis as fast as they can, that's in quotes, The former South Carolina governor, who was appointed ambassador by her leading rival for the GOP nomination, former President Donald Trump, said she informed officials five years ago about Hamas's maps that listed the first Israeli communities to go once the group got past Israel's Gaza border fence, a warning, she added, that has now come to fruition. She said, the first thing I I said to the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, when this happened, was, finish them. 
she told voters at a town hall event at Central College. Haley's appearance Saturday at the college's Graham Conference Center was among her stops on a two-day campaign swing in Iowa. She held a town hall event Friday afternoon at the Ava Center in uh, Cedar Rapids before heading to Iowa City for U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks' annual Triple MMM fundraiser. There she joined a few of her opponents, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who in the last week has lobbed jabs against Haley and falsely claimed that she wants the U.S. to take in refugees from Gaza, the Palestinian territory controlled by Hamas since 2007. Earlier this week, Never Back Down, the super PAC supporting DeSantis, posted a 55-second-long clip of Haley on X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, as she spoke about the people of Gaza to the CNN host Jake Tapper. Tapper, during a recent interview, had asked Haley to respond to a comment DeSantis made about all residents of Gaza being anti-Semitic. Um, we cannot accept people from Gaza into this country as refugees. I'm not going to do that, she said. If you look at how they behave, not all of them are Hamas, but they are all anti-Semitic. None of them believe in Israel's right to exist. Oh, this is from DeSantis. DeSantis said that on October 16th while on the campaign trail in Iowa. None of the Arab states are willing to take any of them. Haley told Tapper she saw a divide between Gazans and Palestinians, where one half didn't want to be under Hamas's rule and have their lives run by terrorists, and the rest supported the militant organization. There are so many of these people who want to be free from this terrorist rule. They want to be free from all of that. And America's always been sympathetic to the fact that you can separate civilians from terrorists. And that's what we have to do, she said. But right now, we can never take our eyes off the terrorists. I mean, what Hamas did was beyond thuggish, brutal, and sick. The latter part of her statement was cut from the clip, never back down, shared. Haley repeatedly has refuted DeSantis's claim of her support for accepting Gaza refugees and continued to do so Saturday after a woman asked her to clarify her stance. Haley responded, God bless Ron DeSantis because he continues to try and bring up this refugee situation. He said, I want to take in Gazan refugees. I have never said that, and he's got an ad on TV. And I will tell you from CNN to Newsy, they have all said that this ad is lying. Haley went on to explain that she has stated that Middle Eastern countries such as Qatar should take in refugees from Gaza. As governor of South Carolina, Haley said she refused to welcome refugees from Syria to her home state after the Paris terror attacks in 2015. So Haley told the woman in the audience, so that's your answer. She then took her own dig at DeSantis. And God bless him, if he keeps doing that, that's what happens when your campaign trail starts to spiral out. Trump has problems and is a liability, voters say. Haley appears to be increasingly a target for opponents as she climbs into the polls and her campaign team expands, especially in Iowa. Trump, who remains by far the polling frontrunner in the 2024 GOP nomination race, called Haley a bird brain on the social media platform Truth after her second debate performance on September 27th. His campaign allegedly sent her a birdcage and a small bag of bird food during her stop in Iowa this month. DeSantis has long polled second behind Trump, but his position may be hanging in the balance with Haley now in that number two spot in New Hampshire 
and South Carolina, another early voting state. Recent polls from 538 show Haley in third place nationally and in Iowa. Republican voters like Gerard Wagner and wife Trudy say they are ready for a new leader in the White House. The Cedar Rapids couple said they were Trump supporters, but now find themselves drawn to Haley and came to see her Friday at her event in their hometown. Jared Wagner, age 61, said he sees Haley as the most electable out of the shrinking pool of GOP presidential candidates and that she has the least baggage. He says, I think she has the ability to bring people together. Victoria Angelus, 65, of Cedar Falls, echoed his sentiments. For her, who attended the same event Friday as the Wagners, it's been Haley and Trump. She said she really loves Trump, despite his problems, but thinks Haley would be an amazing president. If Haley is named the Republican presidential nominee, Angela said, she hopes Trump would be her vice presidential running mate, and vice versa. They're both very good, she said. But 27-year-old Ryan Kelly said his first pick is still DeSantis, a decision, he said, that became clearer after attending Haley's town hall event in Pella. Kelly, a Des Moines resident, said he believes DeSantis is a little more forceful than Haley and that he's been a fan of the Florida governor since he resisted calls for a statewide shutdown during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. He said he has a record of putting wins on the scoreboard against the left, which Haley really doesn't. And I don't think that's really even in her uh, intuition to do that, Kelly said. Still, he told the Des Moines Register he is among the Republican voters seeking an alternative to Trump, and that if Haley were the GOP presidential nominee, he would have no problem at all voting for her. Of Trump, Kelly said he is old, decrepit, and a liability. He's lost four He's lost us four consecutive election cycles in a row, and I don't think he's learned anything. I don't think there's changing, he said. <laughs> Pat, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. And uh, we'll resume our political articles in just a second. But on the front page of the Metro in Iowa, there's a couple pictures from early trick-or-treating at Living History Farms. And the first picture shows some uh, young children accompanied by adults uh, walking through the Walnut Hill during the Halloween celebration at Living History Farms on Saturday. And then there's a second picture with families and, again, some young children working on crafts in the Flynn Barn during the Halloween celebration there, again, at the Living History Farms. So now back to politics. Scott calls the $106 billion war aid plan a bad deal. He says the United States should focus its resources on Israel. William Morris of the Des Moines Register wrote this article in the Dateline as Makokota, Iowa. With American attention turning toward the growing war between Israel and Hamas, Republican presidential candidate Tim Scott suggested Saturday in Iowa that America's other war-torn ally may be running out of runway. The South Carolina senator has backed past military support for Ukraine in its war against Russia. But speaking Saturday to an audience at a Makokota restaurant, Scott said he believes America should be shifting its focus to supporting Israel after the October 7th attacks by Hamas, and that he believes that the U.S. could meet its goals in Ukraine in the next several months. Asked what he believes would constitute victory in Ukraine, Scott raised three main points, degrading the Russian military, dismantling the axis of evil rising between Russia, China, and Iran to the extent possible, and keeping U.S. service members out of the conflict. Scott said, if we can achieve that in the next several months, and I think it can be achieved, I think we'll be better off. 
Although there is no sign the war in Ukraine will end in the coming months, Scott criticized a recent $106 billion budget request from President Joe Biden, including $61 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel. He called that proposal a bad deal and said America should be focusing its resources on Israel over Ukraine. The two nations face very different military challenges, however, and the $14 billion Biden has proposed to send to Israel exceeds the $10 billion that Israel has reportedly asked for, according to the New York Times. Although many attendees applauded Scott's promise to support Israel, one attendee argued the country's campaign against Gaza has gone too far. Jacqueline Terrell of Makokda asked Scott, how can we target Hamas and not target the innocent women and children, not giving them water, not giving them food, and bombing hospitals? Scott responded that reports earlier this week that Israel had bombed a Gaza hospital appear to be unfounded and contrasted Israel's conduct with the Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians on October 7th. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu sent outward days ago to leave that region of Gaza, he said. He gave them what his people did not receive. Terrell, who's 30 years old, said afterwards that she was a registered Democrat who was open to voting for a Republican in 2024, but that she was not satisfied with Scott's answer. I can't jump Republican with a non-humanitarian response that's just kill them all, she said. Scott also was asked for his thoughts on the uh, tumult in the U.S. House of Representatives, which is now in its third week with no elected speaker amid bitter infighting among Republicans. Although he didn't voice support for any particular candidate, Scott expressed exasperation with a process that has seen numerous Republicans oppose a succession of candidates. We need to make sure that every single Republican in the House gets behind a closed door to figure out who they want to be the Speaker and then come out and vote, Scott said. Republican representatives need to remember that every single bad thing that's happened the past two, two years is because the road to socialism runs right through a divided Republican Party. Several candidates have announced bids to replace the ousted Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, with Minnesota Representative Tom Emmert, currently considered a front-runner. Scott declined to comment on Emmert, but called on Republicans to, quote, work in lockstep, unquote, to fill the Speakership, and resume legislating. Deanna? Okay, Ramaswamy, <clears throat> warning against disaster in the making, says Congress should reject war aid. He tells Iowa audiences that he fears a wider conflict. This is from Philip Jones and Galen Bakarier. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy called on lawmakers Saturday to reject an aid package of more than $100 billion proposed by President Joe Biden to help wars in Israel and Ukraine. During the days of barnstorming around eastern and central Iowa, Friday and Saturday, Ramaswamy compared Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel to the way U.S. residents felt after 9-11. He also warned that Israel could get drawn into a bigger Middle Eastern conflict and urged for caution to avoid spreading the war. Last Thursday night, Biden called on Congress to allocate $106 billion in aid to Ukraine and Israel for their respective wars. 
Saturday, Ramaswamy called for lawmakers to vote against the proposal, citing the high cost of previous U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Israel's unclear military objectives in Gaza. Reuters reported that under the plan, $60 billion would go to Ukraine, $14 billion would go to Israel, $10 billion to humanitarian aid, $14 billion to border security, and $7 billion to go to the Indo-Pacific region. During stops in Ottumwa and Oskaloosa Saturday, Ramaswamy said repeatedly that $60 billion would help Ukraine and not Israel while voicing his opposition to the package. He said, I'm very worried that's going to be a disaster in the making, he said on Saturday in Ottumwa. This is the most pro-Israel thing we can do to elevate open debate to avoid making the same kinds of mistakes that we made after 9-11. Ramaswamy, age 38, has touted throughout the primary season that he is the first millennial to run for president as a Republican. But because he is much younger than his more war-hawkish GOP rivals, he could perceive the conflict in Israel differently, he said Friday. On Saturday, while speaking to a crowd of around 50 in Ottumwa, Ramaswamy recalled his own experience as a high school junior sitting in U.S. history class watching coverage of the 9-11 terrorist attacks in horror. An Israeli assault on Gaza could mire Israel in a ground conflict that could be disastrous in the complexity of it, he said in a somewhat. My generation was the one who was lied to systematically about the war in places like Iraq and even elements of Afghanistan, he told reporters Friday. Thousands upon thousands of people, of people my age, who sacrificed their lives that we won't ever get back. Those are mistakes. So how does Ramaswamy feel about the Israeli-Hamas war? His attacks, or Hamas's attacks on Israel, were barbaric, he said Saturday in Oskaloosa. On October 10th, he called for a rational response that supports Israel while avoiding a wider U.S.-led Middle Eastern war. Ramaswamy said the U.S. should provide Israel with diplomatic support, intelligence sharing, and munitions. But unlike many of his other GOP rivals, he does not believe an Israeli assault on Gaza will help. He said, I'm very worried that is going to be a disaster in the making, he said Saturday in Ottumwa. This is the most pro-Israel thing we can do to elevate open debate, to avoid making the same kinds of mistakes that we made after 9-11. In August... Ramaswamy said he would end financial support for Israel, saying an Abraham Accords 2.0 would create diplomatic deals between Israel and other Middle Eastern countries, according to ABC News. He also said that Israel should not be given aid indefinitely. He said, I want to get Israel to the place where it is negotiated back into the infrastructure of the rest of the Middle East. We should not be worried about holding one nation or one region hostage over one particular question relating to Palestine. On Saturday, he said his view has not changed. Israel must define its objectives and what the U.S. is expected to aid, he said. In the absence of that clarity, he said, we should not be providing funding against the backdrop of what I think is lining up to be a disastrous result in a ground invasion of Gaza without a clear objective. He told that to reporters Saturday after a campaign stop in Oskaloosa. Allison Box, age 61, and Mark Box, age 64, went to a Ramaswamy event on Friday when he visited Fort Madison. Allison Box was undecided on who to caucus for. 
Mark Box likes former President Donald Trump, but could be persuaded by Vivek. About war on Israel, Alison Box said, I'm sick about the war over there. I'm sick of what's happening in this country with people protesting. Her husband questioned the dangers of the war. He said, I'm worried that if you roll in there with tanks, I don't know how you'll roll out without an absolute bloodbath, he said. To what end? Donald N. Getterson, age 76, of Middletown, said Trump was his number one choice, but now he thinks he will caucus for Ramaswamy. He said he drew a pretty clear picture of both wars and what he would do, he said of Ramaswamy's assessment of the conflict. We all know what the politics are that are involved, especially in Israel. That's why they haven't invaded yet. Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 4,000 Palestinians since the conflict began on October 7th, the Associated Press reported. U.S. asylum laws are broken as it is, Ramaswamy told reporters Saturday in Oskaloosa. That's not specific just to the Palestinian refugees. I think we need to put a freeze on asylum to this country, at least until we have comprehensively reformed the illegal immigration crisis. Back to you, Pat. Thank you, Deanna. And our final story from the Metro and Iowa section, DeSantis launches Iowa Veterans Coalition. More than 50 supporters back military initiatives. Katie Aiken of the Register wrote this article. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis authored, uh, I'm sorry, Ron DeSantis launched his Iowa Veterans Coalition Saturday, promising to modernize veterans' health care, combat mental health issues facing veterans, and improve military recruitment. His Iowa coalition chairs have all previously endorsed DeSantis, and they included prominent Iowa legislators such as House Majority Leader Matt Winshaw, House Speaker Pro Tem John Wills, and Representative Stephen Holt. Governor DeSantis answered the call to serve when our nation needed him, Winshaw, who served in the U.S. Marines, said in a statement. Now America is seeking a leader who can deliver, and I fully believe that Ron DeSantis, who has worn our nation's flag proudly in battle, is the right person at the right time to lead not only our nation to prosperity, but the free world as well. DeSantis is the only veteran in the GOP primary field, and he has spoken about feeling called to serve in the aftermath of 9-11. After graduating from Harvard Law School, he joined the U.S. Navy and deployed to Iraq as a JAG officer. DeSantis also recently unveiled his veterans policy agenda, which includes a focus on bypassing bureaucracy and government service, banning woke indoctrination, and combating veteran suicide. His Iowa Veterans Coalition includes more than 50 supporters. DeSantis's campaign has shifted resources into Iowa in recent weeks as he seeks to make up ground against former President Donald Trump, who continues to lead the field by double digits. According to Real Clear Politics rolling averages of polling, Trump is the first choice candidate for about 50% of likely Republican caucus goers. DeSantis follows with about 17%, and Haley is in third place with about 9%. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, from page two of the main section. Instilling trust in elections is a challenge. Fear-mongering has led to calls to overhaul the process. This is from Deborah Barfield-Berry and Terry Collins of the USA Today. Dateline, Washington. Ahead of an election cycle already shaping up to be contentious, 
Federal and state election officials are waging campaigns of their own to convince wary voters of the integrity of casting their ballots. They are recruiting poll workers, certifying voting machines, and hosting lessons on how election systems work in community centers, classrooms, and libraries to restore voters' confidence in a system that experts say was mostly trustworthy and secure in the first place. Election officials said many voters simply aren't familiar with the election process. Ben Hovland, vice chair of the bipartisan U.S. Election Assistance Commission, said, we've been looking at ways to demystify that. Election officials across the country are competing with the outsized influence of Trump, who faces felony charges for allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election, and his allies as they continue to undermine faith in the American electoral process, experts say. That fear-mongering, in part, gave rise to calls for major overhauls of election systems in some states led mostly by Republican lawmakers. Some, particularly voters of color, were already skeptical of a system with a history of discrimination that hasn't always been open to them. New laws to restrict access have fueled that mistrust, experts said. Our election process is one of these actions that Americans have taken for granted Even myself, said Zach Moore, a professor at the University of Kansas, now we have these loud voices who start criticizing our election process without proof, and that scares people. What this simply says about America is that some Americans still don't get how all this works. In Exeter, Rhode Island, about 30 people gathered at the public library on a recent Saturday for a community meeting with state election officials. They asked about mail ballots, voter registration, and other concerns, there are plans for similar sessions across the state. Rob Rock, who is Rhode Island's Deputy Secretary of State and President of the National Association of State Election Directors, said, we have to make sure that we're out in front and answering those questions. I have no doubt that the most recent elections are the most secure elections we've ever run because people have asked questions and because they've been so scrutinized. A Pew survey in 2020 found the method of casting ballots affected voter confidence. Of those polled, 49% were very confident about votes cast in person, 41% were somewhat confident, but when it came to absentee or mail-in ballots, just 20% were very confident, 38% were somewhat confident. The fate of candidates supported by those surveyed also played a role. Pew found that Trump supporters were more confident in the process when he won his bid for president in 2016 than when he lost in 2020. To address skeptics, federal election officials said they're trying to provide more information to the public about the security of voting machines. Christy McCormick, chairwoman of the EAC, said during a media briefing last month, We take every opportunity when we're out in the country to explain the process and to underscore that we believe the machines are safe and secure. The EAC has a voluntary certification program in which, among other things, voting machines and systems are tested by accredited independent labs. McCormick said, You can imagine, then, that there are many different voting systems and types of equipment used across the country from ballot markers, devices, to tabulators, It's critical that a thorough process is in place to test each manufacturer's voting system and machines. Federal officials say the goal is to help local officials 
who are often strapped for funds, to tailor their recruitment drives and voter education programs. The EAC provides toolkits that jurisdictions can customize to help with work such as recruiting poll workers. If voters are concerned about the security of machines and the process, they can become poll workers, said Thomas Hicks, an EAC commissioner. He said that's another way. The public can become involved in the process itself, as opposed to just listening to candidates or lawmakers. Municipalities will need the help. Many local election administrators and clerks either quit or retired because of harassment after the 2020 elections. Moore, who's a University of Kansas professor, said. It's really troubling on that level to see it occur, said Moore, adding that those departing election officials take with them a lot of institutional knowledge. While his research shows there are extreme differences in election spending through the country, voters in states and municipalities that spend more tend to have more confidence in their election, press, election process, he said. In Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor Austin Davis, a Democrat, said election officials are pushing to raise poll workers' pay, which he said is low and hasn't increased in years. Election day is a long day, Davis said. We need to make sure that we're appropriately paying the people who are stepping up to do this civic service and this duty. Federal election officials acknowledge the challenges of assuring voters that election systems are trustworthy, especially with the misinformation campaigns shared through social media and phone calls. David Becker, executive director of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, said it's important to hold to account people who are doing the work of our adversaries overseas by telling the American people that they cannot trust their own elections and the public servants of both parties who are running them. The task of assuring voters the nation's election systems work has been harder in recent years, Rock said, but the intense scrutiny has raised awareness. It's important for people to ask questions, he said, but it's even more important for us to be able to answer those questions and make people feel comfortable about their voting process. Pat. Thank you, Deanna. The Des Moines Register today continues with its uh, profiles of candidates running for various local offices here in central Iowa. Today it's the Urbandale School Board, and Amanda Tugade uh, wrote this article. Six candidates are running for the four seats in the Urbandale School Board, including Steve Avis, Daniel Bartke, incumbent Catherine Halser, Josh Van Riswick, Carissa Williams, and Margaret Young. The register asked each candidate to respond to questions on why they're running and the issues their district is facing. Their answers may be lightly edited for clarity or length. So first, Steve Avis. He's 56 years old. He grew up in Rushville, Nebraska. Current home is in Urbandale. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Accounting and a Master of Science in Taxation. His political experience is board member, the Iowa Accounting Examining Board, volunteer advocate for children, a court-appointed special advocate, a tax return preparer for low-income and elderly taxpayers, and a volunteer income tax assistance program, uh, often called VITA, um, in central Iowa. Daniel Bartke is 41 years old, grew up in Nebraska, current home in Urbandale. His education is Associate in Business Administration at DMAC and Associate in Arts, also at DMAC. His political experience for four years, he's worked for several state of Iowa licensing boards and has extensive experience in boardrooms as well as at reading and interpreting law. 
I managed up to 100 employers as a hiring and office manager for eight years. I have served as a secretary for a church trust fund committee. Catherine Halser is the incumbent in this race. She's 72 years old, grew up in Mahaska County, now lives in Urbandale. Her education level is a Bachelor of Arts in English Education, a Master of Arts in Counseling and Library, and her political experience has been on the Urbandale School Board from 2015 through 2023. Next is Josh Van Riswick. He's 46 years old. He grew up in Carlisle, now lives in Urbandale. His education is Carlisle High School. He has his bachelor's from Simpson College in uh, 1999. He also has a degree from the Iowa Culinary Institute at DMAC, and he got that in t- 2009. Political experience is none. Carissa Williams is 40 years old. She grew up in Boone. Her current home is in Urbandale. She has a Bachelor of Arts with a double major in economics and business and political science from Cornell College. Her political experience is co-president president of Valerisa Valeris PTO from 2020 to the present, vice chair and co-founder of Creative Spotlight Scholarship, uh, board of directors at the Urbandale Community Action Network, and she did that from 2016 through 2019. And finally, Margaret Young. She is 36 years old, grew up in Esterville, her current home is in Urbandale. Her education, she graduated from Esterville Lincoln Central High School in 2005, class valedictorian there. Bachelor of Science in Chemistry with an emphasis in biology from Iowa State University. She has her Master of Business Administration with distinction from the University of Iowa Tippie College of Business and has certificates in leadership and marketing. Her political experience is that running for school board is my first step into elected office. In the fall of 2022 through spring of 2023, I volunteered with the Urbandale School District on a parent committee to review diversity, equity, and inclusion. I often visit my kids' classrooms to read or support the PTO. I'm active in my church community through leadership, children's programming, and music. I've served as an ambassador at Kemen Industries for over 12 years to connect with visitors and inspire passion for science with students. So the first question to register posed to these candidates uh, first was, why are you running? Steve Avis said, I'm running for school board because I believe strongly in the power of education. I believe it is essential that every child receive a high-quality education in order to prepare them for success. Daniel Burt Key said, I'm running for school board because I want to give my best effort to support our students, teachers, and schools. Catherine Halser said, I'm running to continue district work. I bring two terms of incumbency to a board with no one over two years of experience. Josh Van Riswick said, I was raised in a household that valued volunteerism and public service. As a parent of an Urbandale graduate and current middle schooler, Running for the school board feels like the right opportunity for me to be of service to my community. As an Asian American, I am a member of a historically marginalized group. Krista Williams said, I want to ensure that our public schools are a safe and welcoming place for all students to receive a high-quality education. I want our staff to be heard and to have their input valued. I want families in the district to understand how and have access to be an active partner in the kids' education. Margaret Young replied to this question as why she's running. I'm running for the Urbandale School Board to support a safe, inclusive, and productive environment for all students to thrive. 
as a daughter of public educators and mom to two school kids. I know teachers are the salt of the earth, and I will support and protect them. In recent years, collaboration sometimes falls to the wayside in favor of polarizing and combative rhetoric. Next question posed, uh, what is the most pressing issue facing the school district and how would you address it? Steve Avis said that we have many pressing issues, but my top pri- topmost priority is ensuring the physical well-being of students and staff by promptly implementing safety improvements immediately after being identified. Additionally, we must fully support teachers in taking necessary steps in maintaining a positive classroom learning environment free from distractions. Daniel Bartke said many parents are concerned about the new grading for learning system adopted in 2022 has yet to be closely examined in the boardroom. Our testing scores, teacher retention, and college readiness numbers are down. We need a core-focused education. Our special education system needs to be prioritized and improved. Catherine Halser said retention and recruitment of staff, certified and classified. We can't do our best for students without a full, well-qualified staff. It's a looming crisis. Josh Van Riswick said Urbandale faces the same hurdles as public schools across our state, with the most challenging being budget shortfalls, teacher shortages, lack of mental health support for students, and attempt to privatize and legislate our public schools. Our administrators, teachers, and staff need our support more now than ever as they navigated a complicated landscape of pressure around curriculum selection, book bans, and attacks on equity and inclusion practices. Carissa Williams said, our most pressing issue is the current staff shortage in education, especially in positions working directly with kids. There are already vacant positions in our system, not enough substitutes, etc. These vacancies and staff shortages put a significant burden on other staff and reduce the quality of education that our kids receive. And Margaret Young said, Urbandale's mission statement, Teaching All, Reaching All, embraces the ever-increasing diversity in our schools and community. While serving on the district's parent committee to review diversity, equity, and inclusion, I saw proficiency gaps in math, science, and literacy for some students, and I was most concerned to learn that only 30% of our students feel emotionally safe at school. Deanna, I think that's enough for the Urbandale story. Let's uh, go on to other stories here. (laughs) Okay, on page 7 of that section. Only two speaker candidates voted to certify the Biden win. This is from Sudiksha Kochi of USA Today, Dateline, Washington. After House Republicans dropped Representative Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, as the nominee for House Speaker Friday, nine candidates threw their hat in the ring for the top spot. But only two of those lawmakers voted to certify the 2020 election, raising questions among some Republicans about where they'll lend their support in the speaker battle. After former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, was ousted earlier this month, House Republicans have refused to coalesce around one candidate and elect a new speaker. Though Jordan went through three rounds of voting on the House floor, he increasingly lost support among Republicans in each vote. The nine candidates running for speaker are House Majority Whip Tom Emmer from Minnesota, Representative Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma, Representative Austin Scott from Georgia, Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, Representative Jack Bergman from Michigan, Representative Mike Johnson from from L.A., 
uh, Representative Pete Sessions from Texas, Representative Dan Muser from Pennsylvania, and Representative Gary Palmer from Alabama. Both Emmer and Scott voted to certify the 2020 election, realizing statements shortly afterward condemning the January 6th Capitol attack. During the riot, a group of former President Donald Trump's supporters tried to block Congress's certification of the 2020 presidential election and President Joe Biden's victory. At the time, Emmer said Congress does not have the authority to disregard state electoral results. Doing so sets a precedent that I believe undermines the state-based system of elections that defines our republic, he said. And Scott, in 2021, said in a statement that he believes his decision to support the Electoral College fulfills my sworn oath to the Constitution. The other candidates, including Hearn, Donalds, Bergman, Johnson, Sessions, Muser, and Palmer, voted to overturn the results of the election, mostly taking aim at Arizona and Pennsylvania's results. In total, 147 members of Congress objected to certifying the 2020 race. Some of those lawmakers called for legal proceedings surrounding the election to play out before certifying the election. There was not widespread fraud in the 2020 election, including in pivotal swing states such as Pennsylvania and Arizona. Pat. Thank you, Dana. And one more quick story before we get to our birthday break here. Senator Menendez pleads not guilty to new charge. Larry Neumeister wrote this article. U.S. Senator uh, Bob Menendez returned to Manhattan Federal Court Monday to challenge a new criminal charge alleging that he conspired to act as an agent of the Egyptian government when he chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Not guilty, Menendez said, who's age 69, when Judge Sidney H. Stein asked him for a plea to the charge. It was his first appearance before Stein, who was expected to preside over a trial tentatively scheduled for May. Stein said the plea was the sole purpose for the hearing and adjourned the proceeding after less than five minutes. Menendez left the courthouse minutes later without speaking to reporters outside. At an arraignment before a magistrate judge last month, Menendez was released on a $100,000 bond. The New Jersey Democrat was forced to step down from his powerful post leading the Senate committee after he was charged last month. Prosecutors said the senator and his wife, Nadine Menendez, accepted bribes of cash, gold bars, and a luxury car over the past five years from three New Jersey businessmen in exchange for a variety of corrupt acts. <laughs> 